Hello and welcome to the pilot episode of this podcast. I'm just going to jump right in, no intro or anything. The first thing we are talking about today is Apple's hardware event that was held 10 days ago. Yes, I'm a little late to the party, but whatever. Now, there were only two things announced at this event. The Apple Watch Series 6 and the new iPad lineup. Which I think is great and all, but they also announced a couple of other things that hint at what's coming in the future, you know, iPhone 12 and all that stuff. Um, first, they announced the Apple Watch Series 6, which, I mean, nothing really stood out. There's blood oxygen monitoring and a new chip, that's all good. And then the Apple Watch SE. Most people, if they want a budget watch right now, will probably buy like a Series 3 or something. And that's not the most ideal option right now. So Apple decided to give consumers with a slow, slightly lower budget what they want. And they created the Apple Watch SE. And uh, I think it's a step in the right direction. It uses the S5 chip from last year with the Series 5 and it has pretty much everything you'd expect out of an Apple Watch today. Of course, not the blood oxygen, but it's a good alternative to Series 3. Its chip is two times better than the Series 3 and if you need a budget Apple Watch, that's what you're going for. Now, of course, if you don't even have the money to afford an Apple Watch SE, you could still get the Series 3 for $200 from Apple or about $100 if you start looking at sites like eBay. But um, let's uh, switch over to the software side of things where they announced a new feature coming to Apple Watch Series 4, 5, 6 and SE. Uh, called family setup specifically for the cellular models where if one family member has an iPhone and their kids or their parents don't have an iPhone they can register an Apple watch with the person who has an iPhone and that uses a feature called family setup and it's especially useful for kids. There's a new school time feature for teachers and parents. And then there's location tracking and all that stuff. And it gives each kid or adult their own phone number and email ID. And you can apply certain restrictions. Who they can call, who they can message, what apps they can use, etc. It's a move in the right direction. What I really want to talk about is the iPad announcements. They made some changes to the basic iPad and the iPad Air. Now, let's start with the basic iPad. There's not really much here. They just added the A12 chip to the basic iPad, which it's better than last year, but uh, I mean, yeah, I get that it's supposed to be a budget iPad, but we are on the A14 Bionic now, 
which was introduced alongside the new iPad Air. And this one's the big one. First of all, this iPad has, of course, the A14 Bionic, but it has Touch ID on the top button. This could mean that Apple may do the same thing with their iPhone 12 because Face ID is nice and it's secure and all that, but considering that, you know, it looks at your face and it takes about a second or two to actually get in, whereas with traditional Touch ID uh, on, say, the iPhone 8, it's like lightning fast. Like, you put your finger on the home button and you're at the home screen. And iPad Air has the same kind of speeds now, but with Touch ID on the top button. And iPad Air is finally getting a USB-C port. I'm not sure if iPhone 12 will get that treatment, but I hope it does. And then they announced that they're removing the USB power adapters as speculated uh, from the Apple Watch boxes. Maybe they'll do it with the iPhone boxes as rumored, but they're removing the USB power adapter as part of their promise to go carbon neutral by 2030. They say it'll be the equivalent of taking 50,000 cars off the roads because of how many USB power adapters are being accumulated at homes. So, I mean, if you really want a charger and you're buying an iPhone for the first time, you can always get one off of Amazon or something like that. But um, I really do hope they fulfill their promise of being carbon neutral by 2030. That is a good reason to stop including power adapters. But what could this mean for iPhone 12? I mean, we've got the new A14 Bionic. We've got Touch ID on the top button. USB power adapters removed, USB-C coming to the iPad Air. And I have a feeling that whatever was announced for the iPad Air today, I mean 10 days ago, will hold the same for the iPhone 12 coming out later this year, presumably October. We'll have to see. Anyway, moving on to Nintendo. Nintendo's killing it right now. They have dominated the market in Japan. And uh, they held a Mario Direct two weeks ago, announcing a bunch of stuff. Super Mario 3D World plus Bowser's Fury and Super Mario Brothers 35 and Mario Kart Live Home Circuit and the Game & Watch and uh, new Mario merch including a Super Mario 64 shoe. A Super Mario 64 shoe. I love this game. It's one of my favorite childhood games and now I get to wear a Mario 64 shoe. Okay. But by far their biggest announcement was Super Mario 3D All-Stars 
yes, the rumors were true. Kind of. There was no Galaxy 2 and they weren't remasters. They weren't even ports. Well, Galaxy was a half port. But the other two were just emulated. But, I mean, that's fine. Uh, I thought new generations will experience these games for the first time. And I was so happy. But then... They said it's a limited release that's available for six months. Why Nintendo? Anyways, the hype they've built around this collection, which consists of 64 Sunshine and Galaxy, has made some people ecstatic and some people, well, angry, like really angry. But why? We'll discuss that. And also, why, despite all these caveats, it's still selling very well. It's the number two best-selling game on Amazon. And also number one in Japan when it comes to the video game market. Along with the Nintendo Switch already being the best-selling console of the three. So... After a short break, we'll talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly about Super Mario 3D All-Stars. Alright, I'm back. That break was literally a few seconds long. But anyways, let's just jump right into Super Mario 3D All-Stars. The good, the bad, and the ugly. First, let's start with the good. It's Super Mario 64, Super Mario Sunshine, and Super Mario Galaxy all together in one bundle for $60. How can you get better than that? Well, there are a few ways they can definitely get better, and I'm going to talk about that today. But uh, it's a great deal. It's great value. And considering each of the games have gotten enhancements, I'd say that it's totally worth it. Now, let's get to the bad. Well, before we get to the bad part specifically, I just want to mention the, well, the technical specifications of it. Super Mario 64 runs at 4 by 3 in 720p while Sunshine and Galaxy are in widescreen and 1080p. 64 and Sunshine run at 30fps whereas Galaxy runs at 60fps as usual. And uh, here's where we get to the bad. They could have done better. I mean you go from 64 or Sunshine to playing Galaxy and you feel, oh my god, this is so smooth. I like this. Then you go back to Sunshine or 64 and it's like, it's jarring every time you go between the two. So they could have at least put in that little effort to make 64 widescreen and both 64 and Sunshine 60 FPS because the community's done it already. I mean, for 64, you not only have 
widescreen and 60 FPS patches for an emulator, which is what Nintendo's using. They could have easily created widescreen patches for their own game when the community before the decompilation existed could make their own widescreen patches. But here's the thing. They emulated it when the community has literally decompiled and reverse engineered the whole thing, the, the source code, and they even ported it natively to Switch in widescreen, 60 FPS, and running at full 1080p. And then there's the texture packs and my god, the Render 96 models, they look amazing. Put all of that together, like what I use is switch port combined with the cleaner aesthetics texture pack and the Render 96 models, you have the perfect Mario 64. If the community was able to reverse engineer the source code and recompile it to work on a switch, then my question is, Nintendo already has the source code, why couldn't they put in half the effort the community put in? Heck, not even half, because the community had to take the ROM, decompile it, reverse engineer it, and make it easy for programmers and hackers to use. And then they ported it to PC and they ported it to PC port to Switch. They did all that and Nintendo wasn't bothered to use the source code they already had and just ported to Switch. Heck, I'm not even saying they needed to port it to Switch. There are widescreen 60 FPS patches already out there. They could just use those. Well, I'm not too happy about this, but hey, they're Nintendo. They do whatever they want and they get cash out of it. So, well, you know, that's fine. And then we get to Sunshine. It's in widescreen. I'm happy. But again, Dolphin emulator, if you aren't aware, uh, it's a GameCube and Wii emulator. And like, what I find funny is Nintendo pretends Dolphin doesn't exist. Yet, Dolphin is able to emulate almost every GameCube and Wii game perfectly and the Wii menu without like any hitch whatsoever. And if you have a real Wii and you've dumped the NAND from it, you can literally open up the Wii Shop channel, browse it, download stuff, have it show up on your Wii menu and do all that from your PC. And it's also on Android and iOS. And Dolphin can run Sunshine at 4K 60fps. Why can't Nintendo? It isn't even a patch. They didn't even change the code. It's just literally a little cheat code that you type in. Four line cheat code. You type it in and the game's in 60fps. And I don't see why Nintendo can't do that. They're Nintendo. They're the people who created the game. But, well, I'm fairly happy with this collection. And Galaxy, well, it has barely changed. And I don't think it needed to change at all. I think it's the best game in this collection. 
The controls were optimized to work on Joy-Cons and it's running at a full 1080p which is really refreshing for a Wii game that ran at 480p. So overall I'd say Galaxy is the best. Sunshine is at least in 1080p widescreen and that I appreciate. And 64, it's just what 64 always was. I mean, sure, they've updated the HUD, but most of the in-game textures are still the same. So, it again looks kind of jarring. You look at the HUD and say, oh, that's so neat. And then you look at some of the walls and stuff, especially in like Hazy Maze Cave, and you're like, oh, that's super ugly. And to top it all off, they used the Shindu edition of Mario 64, which has a good and bad side to it. The good side is for pretty much everyone, because, well, it added rumble pack support and a couple of little easter eggs. The voice is higher pitched and stuff, but nobody will really mind that. Speedrunners, though, they are going to hate this version, it packed the BLJ. Yeah, one of the most infamous glitches in Mario history was patched in the Shindu version. It was released in 1997 as a Japan exclusive update to Super Mario 64. And one more thing about it is the tree grabbing physics are different. So instead of just like grabbing onto the tree, turning a little bit and then climbing it, he grabs onto the tree and takes about a second to actually turn to face the camera and then starts climbing it. I mean, those are minor annoyances. And of course, the infamous Solange Bowser line was replaced with bye-bye. And <laughs> the community does not seem to like that. But all they did was take the Shindu ROM and I guess translate it to a couple of languages and well, that's all they did, honestly. They updated the HUD, but they didn't do much apart from that. And I think that's pretty lazy, but I'm not the one to judge that. They're Nintendo, and their sales show that they are actually doing extremely well right now. I mean, just look at the sales of the Switch. It is the best-selling console this generation worldwide and is also as an added bonus the dominant player in japan like it has been selling wildly in japan and super mario 3d all-stars has also dominated the market in japan being the number one best-selling video game currently and overall, Nintendo is killing it right now. And after a short break, we are going to talk about Microsoft's acquisition of Bethesda. Hello, and we're back after another really short break. And Microsoft recently acquired Bethesda for $7.5 billion. Well, they acquired ZeniMax Media, the parent company of Bethesda. If you aren't aware, Bethesda Softworks is a publisher of 
popular video game franchises like Doom, Fallout, Elder Scrolls. You may have heard of them. You would have definitely heard of them. And uh, yeah, they bought Bethesda and they have said what they plan to do is put Bethesda games on Xbox Game Pass and uh, do things like release Elder Scrolls 6 exclusively on Xbox things like that and uh, Phil Spencer from Microsoft said generations of gamers have been captivated by the renowned franchises in the Bethesda portfolio and will continue to be so for years to come as part of Xbox so this hints that future Bethesda games are going to be Xbox exclusives. And I think that would actually help Microsoft. And because most uh, Bethesda games right now, if people want to play Bethesda games, they mostly go to PlayStation and Microsoft wants to change that. And they might also publish some games occasionally for PlayStation like what they did with Minecraft, they bought Mojang and they said, okay, Mojang, you do your thing, uh, give people the Minecraft Java edition and Java edition is amazing, I play it, you should go buy it. And then they said, we'll take care of the Bedrock edition for mobile, console and all that stuff. And this model seems to be working out for them. They're the same game, but two different versions. And while the Java edition ha is good for just like a huge amount of players playing multiplayer on a server or say you're building something on single player, things like that. It's basically the original Minecraft edition and the Bedrock edition is what I use to just chill out with my friends in a five player world. just have fun in creative mode and uh, play with about a thousand or two thousand people on a server. They each have their own benefits and Bedrock has extremely smooth performance and my god, Nvidia RTX plus Minecraft for Windows 10 equals blown away. Anyway, this acquisition is just going to add to the host of great Xbox games. And uh, here's what they might do with Bethesda other than just uh, port games to Xbox. It, first of all, it strengthens the Xbox game portfolio, obviously, and uh, it boosts Microsoft's efforts to be the premier platform for cloud-based gaming. So. You know their project xCloud, recently it got banned from the app store for violating certain app store policies and considering Microsoft and Samsung are already like have a really close bond, they could just put xCloud on Samsung devices but I mean they're losing out on Apple and that's a huge thing. So I suspect they're going to bring back some players by acquiring Bethesda and putting their games on xCloud. 
so yeah that might uh, be what they're planning to do and uh, that should also help Bethesda because they just have to focus on making games and Microsoft can host titles on xCloud and distribute it and take care of all that stuff and yeah as I mentioned earlier Phil, Spen Phil Spencer says Bethesda titles are coming to Xbox Game Pass so that's another plus and overall this just seems really good for them now some people were speculating that Microsoft would buy Sega and announce it at the Tokyo Game Show but no according to Microsoft that isn't the case at least they're not going to announce any acquisitions at the Tokyo Game Show well that was it for today's episode of me rambling about iPhones and Mario uh, if you're watching this on YouTube subscribe to my channel if you're watching this on spot if you're listening to this on spotify or apple podcasts or google or any podcast service for that matter subscribe to this podcast for more me rambling about tech and iphones and mario and minecraft and i'll see you whenever the next 